0: Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Dave Ansel. First of all, have you got any strange science stories or anything that rocks your boat? So,
0: a bit of a blast from the past. Um do you remember airships or oh, just yes. sort of Zeppelin yeah. type things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um great big sort of um flying things being held up by helium which mm. floats in air, so you hold them up. Well, they might be coming back. Um, the American government has um, ordered, actually a British company um, based in Cardington, to build them some sort of big 300-foot-long airships. Wow. They're not quite conventional airships, because the problem with the conventional airship is um, it's, they're called lithon airships, aircraft, but actually they have to be exactly the same density as air, because if they're too light, they float and carry right. on going upwards until they pop. Yep. If they're too heavy, they fall down and crash. So they've got to spend the whole time, um, either if they're too heavy, they've got to drop some ballast. Or if they get too light, they have to vent off. Some um, helium, and helium's expensive. So it's a big problem. Um, But there's a British company which has come up with a solution for that. Um, The the, the airship they've got is called the Sky Cat. They had a little toy one called the Sky Kitten, which they've been playing with. It's rather cute. Um, But the idea is a catamaran. So you have two airships. You glue them together, Mm. and then you have a sort of a membrane between the two. Right. Um, And so it basically looks like a very short wing. And so it can um, get some of its lift by going through the air like a normal airplane, but most of it from helium. Um, which means that um, it can always be slightly heavier than air, so it doesn't blow away if you land, sure. and you don't have this problem with having to keep adjusting the, the, your density all the time. Um, and so, the Americans want one to um, fly up, fly round, sort of uh, unmanned one, um, which fly around places like Afghanistan and look down on the ground, so they know what's going on. And they reckon it should be able to stay up there for sort of twenty days, carrying about a ton of play- payload. Gosh! And so maybe at some point we'll see airships flying around again.
1: But isn't that going to be better for the carbon footprint of planes?
0: Um, They are supposed to be, um, not necessarily for this particular thing, but Mm. they do also have plans for building huge ones, which would carry sort of a 1,000 tonnes. And that would be slightly better than planes, a bit slower, but definitely use sort of a quarter or a third of the um, energy of a plane to move a tonne of stuff from here to there. Mm. So maybe we'll be seeing more of them.
1: Wow, it's quite something. Always so scary there, because all the films that you see, there was never a happy ending with them, was there?
0: Oh, they were all hydrogen-filled, and they also had a tendency to make the, um, the covers of them out of um, very, very flammable materials, yeah. because they, they used to use a thing called dope, which is basically nitrocellulose with an explosive, um, so it was all a bit flammable. Yeah. Um, but the modern ones are made out of much less flammable fabrics, because fabrics got a lot better, and you fill them with helium, which doesn't burn, doesn't react with anything.
1: Uh, let's start then with that uh, question, from Claire, who says, apart from the heat and the force needed to get planes up through our atmosphere, are there any other reasons why usual aircraft couldn't cope in our solar system? Well, the big
0: thing, the biggest problem is that the way a normal aircraft works, where it moves, where it flies, and how it stays up, is by basically throwing... Um, taking air at the front, whether it's with a propeller or with a jet engine, and then throwing it out the back. And so the plane is throwing the air out the back, which means that it's pushing on the air backwards, so the plane gets pushed forwards. Mm-hmm. It's also the way the, pl- the plane stays up because the wings push air downwards, and if the, if the um, plane is pushing air downwards, then the air pushes the plane upwards. Um, it's a really fundamental property of the universe. Um, Newton worked it out every action has to equal opposite reaction. Basically, if you push something, it pushes you back. So if the plane gets high enough out of the atmosphere, um, normal planes stop working above, so over about 50,000 metres, not really enough air mm. to be able to still work anymore. Um, so there's just not enough air to take in and, and both push them along and hold them up. Um, the planes have got higher than that, but they tend to be basically rocket-powered planes. You'd also have to have um, big problems with... Conventional plane, because the way that you get air to breathe, even if you get very high up, is by um, concentrating the air which is outside. they compress the air from the outside um, and if you get high enough, there's not enough air to compress, and so you wouldn't have anything to breathe and yeah there's probably a few other problems, but the major one is there's just nothing to push on there's no way for the plane to move you need, you need a rocket.
1: Mm. Now Ralph in Stanford has said uh, with the weather changing from hot to cold in the space of days, why is it that when it rained on Tuesday evening there, uh, although the temperature was not hot, we still had a thunderstorm so why would that be? Well you
0: tend to get um, thunderstorms associated with lots and lots of energy, uh, sort of very high energy sort of weather Um, and that tends to happen when you mix cold air and warm air um, because the cold air will come in push the um, warm air upwards basically cold air is denser than the warm air so the warm air will float upwards above the cold air as it rises it expands cools down all the water in it falls out you get lots of very heavy rain Um, you get all sorts of strange um, electrostatic effects Um, raindrops can rub on air and other raindrops things can charge up and you get lightning so actually you would probably expect thunder to be associated with a change from really warm humid muggy um, conditions to cool conditions, and also just because it's cool where you're standing doesn't mean there's a lot of warm muggy air above your head because air masses can sit on top of each other. Um, so, I mean, in fact, when it's going from warm to cold, that's when I'd expect you to get thunderstorms.
1: Mm. Um, Gerald has. Um come up with this he says uh, i have been looking for longer speaker cables that and have been stunned by the price asked for leads and cable in modern home theater systems 50p to 12 pounds per meter ouch other than having well made good connections and plugs that don't rust or corrode over time what is the science behind pure copper oxygen-free silver wires figure of eight windings solid core and teflon coating gerald i totally agree (laughs) i have no idea but perhaps dave does dave
0: I'm not really an audiophile, so I'm generally fairly suspicious of all these things. Um, I think the argument for certain things like using silver or very, very pure copper is it reduces the resistance slightly. Mm. But as a physicist, my um, immediate effect is, can't you just use a slightly larger wire? Then the resistance will be smaller, and it's probably far cheaper than using all these really exotic materials. And I mean, I guess if you've got a low resistance, you get slightly less um current noise, but that's going to be minute compared you do you get sort of you've got high resistance, you get current jumping across the resistance and you get a little bit of noise, but it's going to be very very small i don't know my general feeling uh, although please don't sue no nobody sue me my my, my impression is that. A lot of these things are just ways of extracting money out of people.
1: I have, um, they still work as well, some copper speaker leads um, for for PA equipment. And I bought them because they look pretty, because they they were clear and you could see the copper inside, which is great because you could see if there was any breaks then, which was perfect sense. And that's why I brought them. And I think they must be 20 years old and they're still working.
0: I mean, it's normally the cables which break on things because if you bend them all the time, Mm. then they can snap. And I can imagine some of the, you might have a better quality one, which is less likely to snap. And actually a pure copper... Is going to be slightly uh, more flexible, so um, you might get slightly less issues with them bending and bending and, and snapping. Hmm. But I, I'd i be very surprised, especially if it's sitting still, if it's, if it's worth the money. But then again,
1: I'm not an audiophile, so what do I know? We're going to go to the phones now because Alan is on the line. Hi, Alan. Hi, there, Sue. Hi, you're through to Doctor Dave. What's your question?
0: Oh, Doctor Dave. Hello. You might find this a bit of an unusual question, and you may think that the question itself really gives the answer, but to me it doesn't. But the, the question is, what do we smell when we smell onions? And I suppose you could even say the same about garlic. What is it we're smelling, and how comes it can travel such great distances and yet you can still smell it? Hm. Mm the smell of onions is associated with a group of compounds called thiols, they're organic compounds um, so they've got carbon oxygen and hydrogen in them and some sulphur in there um, and they're quite actually quite nasty compounds and they, if they, when they get into your eye I think they actually oxidise a bit bit which is a re, um, when they react with oxygen they tend to something quite nasty which your eye reacts to and mm-hmm. makes you cry um, but it's these compounds which um, are ve- they're, they're, your nose is incredibly sensitive to them, and you can smell them from a long, long way away. Um, and there's no, and they don't really degrade that quickly, so I can imagine you could smell onions from quite a long way away.
1: Just because of the volume of it, does that then give it a greater distance?
0: Well, I mean, with any... I mean, because a a smell is basically molecules of a substance getting into your nose, and then they trigger some receptors inside your nose, and then that sends a signal to your brain. So the more of them are in the somewhere to start with, as they spread away, they're going to get more and more dilute. So the more you started with, the further they're going to get Mm. at a concentration which you can still smell them. And garlic is the same? I imagine it's not quite the same compound but they're they're quite strongly related so I would have thought it's a similar one. Uh, I'm afraid my knowledge on it isn't entirely in depth but they smell similar enough that I would have thought it was another file if not quite the same one.
1: Right, All right. thanks very much You're welcome Alan, thank you, bye Uh, Let's uh, go now to a question that uh, was sent in by Dom in Newmarket who says how do they extract vegetable oil from vegetables? I've often wondered that Olive oil, you see, they press and that. that. So how do they do it with uh, normal veggies?
0: I don't think vegetable oil is necessarily coming from the vegetables which you're thinking of. It's not coming from things like carrots or um, or onions or any of these sort of things. Mm -hmm. I think it tends to come from, and a lot of it comes from, oilseed rape, which is the thing um, with very, very bright yellow flowers, which you sometimes see whole fields full of. Um, other vegetable oils tend to come from seeds, so you get linseed oil yep. um, and sunflower oil. So again, come from sunflower seeds. And I mean, if you've ever eaten a sunflower seed, if you kind of squash it, you do get a kind of oil coming mm, out of it. Yep. It's quite an oily thing. And so I think they do um, just squash them. Um, if they want to get more of the oil out, they'll heat them up first because this makes the oils more, more runny. So it's easy to squash them out. Um, I think with things like olive oil, the sort of first pressings um, are done cold, um, and then later you tend, to, then later they tend to heat them all up and get the last um, it, itsy bitsy bits of oil out of them, which apparently tastes slightly different. But yeah, it, I think it's you start off with an oily vegetable or an oily seed, and then you squash it.
1: All right, well, let's go on to uh, email now. This one has come in from uh, Howard, um, who says, um, hi, Naked Scientists. just want to say I love the show. Um, I had a question which a professor asked us a few years ago. um, Is leaving a light on a waste of energy?
0: Yeah, I think um, the thing is, he was um, wondering. Uh, the professor had this argument to his wife. They had a big argument, apparently. Um, and he w- he was saying that he, in in the winter, when you are when you're having to heat your house, if he yep. leaves the light on, then his heating isn't going to have to work as hard, so it's not going to waste any energy. And that actually sort of depends on how he's heating the house. If he's heating the house with electricity then the heat coming from his light bulb is exactly the same as the heat coming um, from his electric heater in the corner. And therefore, if the light bulb is on and the the electric heater isn't on on for quite as long, then it really doesn't matter. The the problem is that the heat coming from ele- all the electricity or the energy and electricity, whenever you make electricity, especially in a coal power station or something, you're wasting about half of the energy in the power station because um, the fact that you lose it is hot water. Have you ever seen the cool- big cooling towers yeah. with what looks like huge amounts of smoke coming out? It's actually steam because the way um, a steam engine works, which is what a big power station is, is you heat heat water, you get it very, very hot, it boils, you then run it through a load of turbines, you then have to cool it down at the other side, which um, sort of creates a vacuum and pulls, increases the pressure difference. Um, And so you need to dump all that heat at the the end, because there's still quite a lot of heat in the steam once it's gone through the turbine. Um, And that tends to be about half of the energy in the fuel. So if you're heating with electricity just with a straight heater in the corner, then you're wasting half the energy. If you're just burning gas, then all of the energy in that fuel is going to heat your house. So it's better to heat your house using gas than it is using electricity in a light bulb. So leaving the light on is actually wasting energy. So, yeah, it depends. And if you're heating your house using some kind of more environmentally friendly means, like a hot um, solar panels in the roof or with some kind of heat pump which um, you get the sort of you can pump the up sort of seven or eight times as much energy using one unit of energy electrical energy um, then it's much better to um, use the use your heating system and not the light bulb
1: Right, let's go to the phones now, because on the telephone we have the one and only Tony. Hello, Tony. Hello. Hey, it's nice to one hear from you. One and only, Oh, you're through to the one and only Dr. Dave. What's your question?
0: Right. Uh, well, I'm old enough to remember the doodlebugs during the war, mm-hmm. yeah. and I can't remember how their engine worked, because it wasn't uh, a propeller, obviously, and it wasn't uh, um what do they call it? A the normal jet, jet yeah, they had this very distinctive buzzing noise, sort of about fifty hertz, maybe a hundred hertz, kind of horrible buzzing noise. I've heard. I've heard. I've only seen them on films. They were actually quite an interesting design, um, as quite a lot of weapons are in a slightly depressing yeah. way. Um, they were basically a tube, and on the uh, on the front of the tube there was a valve. So um, there were basically lots of um, louvres, louvres um, so, which, could, which would open and close, a bit like a big valve. So if you just push the tube through the air, all the, the, the valves would open and let air into the tube. It would then squirt a load of fuel in and, and then ignite it with a spark plug or something similar. And then this caused a big explosion inside the tube, um, like which would explode in both directions. But this would shut the valve, so all of that explosion would get shot out the back and so all the um, hot gases would get shot out the back which would push the bug along a bit it would then, once the explosion had finished the valve would open, more air would come in You'd fill it with fuel again ignite it and it would go bang and it would squirt the, all the hot gases out the back so it was actually a form of uh, jet engine, it's called a pulse jet well, yeah it was, but it was um... a paraffin wasn't it? I'm not sure what the fuel was. Yeah, I was. think it was paraffin. I could imagine it was, because, yeah, they were very short of petrol at that point in Germany, so they'd be trying to make anything work on paraffin <laughs> if they could. Yeah. Very ingenious and probably very, very cheap to make because it was just a tube with a valve on the front.
1: Very scary, it was isn't it? no
0: <laughs> use for modern aircraft, you know, little aircraft, for example, did they? They are horribly noisy, I think is one of the very noisy, yeah. Um, the other problem is the valve doesn't didn't last very long. But on uh. a doodle bug, that didn't really matter. No, of course not. Because <laughs> um, as long as it worked for three or four hours, then it was fine. Or no, even like an hour or so. There are some people who have come up with various other designed There's a guy in um, New Zealand who's come up with a um, a kind of pulse jet which doesn't actually involve a valve at all. There's some crazy sort of resonance system with all sorts of vibrations in tubes. Uh, to be honest, I don't understand. Um, and he's and he's powered a uh, motorbike with it once, but I think he had to wear some really hardcore ear defenders.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Lovely to hear from you. Bye, bye, folks. Bye, bye. 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 Now, uh, one about sugar here, actually, Dave, which is uh, quite interesting. Um, it's uh, John in Peterborough who says when you boil sugar As the temperature goes up, the sugar enters various states, such as soft boil and hard boil. Why does this happen, and why are there so many different states?
0: Okay, um, so you've got a very strong sugar solution, um, sort of syrup, and you're heating it up. And as you heat it up, it starts to boil. And the temperature it would boil at is slightly increased from normal because if you dissolve a load of stuff in water, it boils at a higher temperature, which is actually one of the reasons why you put salt. Why you often put salt in vegetables because that increases the boiling point, which increases the temperature, which it boils at. And so um, it's a bit hotter and so it will cook quicker. So it will get quite hot and then slowly as it as it boils, you lose more and more water so it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And then what starts to happen is the little sugar molecules have enough energy um, and a shortage of water and they start um, reacting with one another and they sort of lose one water molecule or the, the, lose a little bit of water from their own structure and they, t- they stick together and form little chains. And I think what you're, the, the different forms of boil is basically turns into how hard a form of caramel or toffee you end up making. And how, and that's to do with how long these chains are. So if you've got little short chains, then it's still very runny because the chains can move past each other. And as they get longer, um, then they start to tangle up with one another, and they also start to get darker because they absorb light better. And so as the toffee gets, as the chains get longer, they get they get stiffer and they also get darker. And so you, you have one end, you've got sort of very light caramel, and the other end a really dark, hard, almost shattering sort of toffee.
1: Let's go to the phones again now, uh, because Sean is on the line. Hello, Sean. Hello. Hello. There you're through to Dr Dave. What's your question?
0: Uh, Hi, Dave. Um, Hello. I just just wondered, um, you know when an aeroplane hits the uh, sound barrier, you hear this noise, a crack or... A sonic boom. Yeah, sonic boom. Um, What, if anything, would you hear if the plane was able to reach the speed of light? okay yeah the sonic boom is basically a sort of bow wave it's not just one crack as it goes through the speed of sound it's actually it's very like a bow wave you get this line of very highly compressed air in front of the plane and another one at the and a kind of very low pressure area at the back of the plane and so with some very big plane like concord you used to hear two bangs one from the front and one from the back um, and as the plane flies past you, then these, um, this basically bow wave goes past and it um, wobbles your ears and you hear it as a, a crack or a, um, as a boom, depending on how far away you are. Um, now, it, you can't go faster than the speed of light in a vacuum, but um, you can, particles can go faster than the speed of light in a material because light can go significantly slower in a lump of glass or a lump of water. And what you actually get behind them then is a sort of, you get a bow wave. It's not of sound this time, but of light. Um, And you get this, um, uh, it's not some Russian, it's something like Cherenkov radiation. And so you get these bow waves of blue Cherenkov radiation as these particles go through. Um, you wouldn't hear anything because, well, if if something large enough for you to see, if a plane actually went through a lump of glass at some, close enough to the speed of light, um, to be, um, then you'd, you'd just basically get a huge explosion because there'd be so much any, energy involved. But with small particles, you just get these little this rather beautiful blue light coming off.
1: Oh, ah, okay. Has that solved That's it nice. for you, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. All uh, right. It's a point of interest. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. Take care. Dr. Dave is here answering your questions. And um, he has one from uh, that's come from Twitter, I think, Dave. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, OK. It's from uh, Andy Wilkin. And uh, he asks, I've the music on, um, if all the bottles of Coke in the world were opened, how much carbon dioxide would be released?
0: This is a very, very rough calculation. I've been uh, attempting to make as many guesses as I can. Um, I've managed to find a figure that um, worldwide on average people drink probably about two litres of coke per person every year that's about ten billion liters of coke. So about ten million tons of coke is made in the in the world every year. That's probably, I think this is just Coca-Cola. It's cola. Well. Cola in general. Other colas Coca-Cola are available. Gen- other colas yeah. are av- available, but they're not in the numbers I've managed to find. Um, so th- this number is probably a lot. It's probably at least twice this. Yep. Um, th- so there's five billion people. So that means there's about um, ten billion liters of um, coke. Of, of, of this type being made every year, um, probably saying about a tenth of that is probably um, actually in, around at any one time. That's mm-hmm. probably quite. A, it's probably actually the life, the life cycle of a bottle of um, fizzy drink is a lot shorter than that. But say roughly. Um, So that means you've got about uh, a billion um, litres of Coke floating around at any one time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think each litre has probably about five grams in it. So that means you've got about five billion grams of carbon dioxide in bottles of Coke around the place, which is about 5,000 tonnes if you open them all at once. Probably you could double that or um, quadruple it very easily because... There's various other drinks, and if you talk talking about all f- other so, fizzy so drinks... So what
1: effect would that have, then? Not very much. Not very much? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just a lot of
0: shh. <laughs> <laughs> Make quite good sound.
1: But. Make quite good sound. Now, John in Tiptree, Dave, has said, with all the technology that we've got, have scientists been able to pinpoint the direction of the centre of the universe?
0: The strange thing about the universe, as far as we know at the moment, um, is... That if you look in pretty much every direction, it looks approximately the same. So there is two interpretations of that. One is that we are the centre at the centre of the universe, um, because
1: and we're looking out, and we're looking out yep. from the yep. middle. Yeah,
0: because um, if you were at the, at the edge, you look in one direction and the, and you'd see lots of galaxies, and you're looking another one, and you don't see any in the same way as we're near the edge of our um, of the Milky Way, our galaxy. And if you look in one direction, in fact, it tends to be um, from south then you see a huge number of stars at the, from the centre of the galaxy, which is where Milky Way is much more impressive from the southern hemisphere. And if you look in the other direction, essentially north, um, then there's much fewer stars, um, because we're looking out into the rest of the universe. But if you look at beyond our galaxy, mm. then if you look in all directions, it looks about the same. So either we're at the centre, which sounds unlikely, mm. or there isn't really a centre. So there's lots of theories which basically involve... Um, the universe um, either being infinite and it and it's expanding and just taking up more space, everything's just getting further apart from one another, or that it sort of it can get be curved round in on itself. So it could be if if, if you, our universe has got three dimensions, but you could think of it as a, if it was two dimensional, like the surface of a balloon, and the balloon's been blown up, so everything gets further apart. And so if you drew lots of galaxies on a balloon and you blew up the balloon, they'd all get further apart. But wherever you stood and you looked out at the other galaxies, they'd all look about the same. So I think generally people think that there isn't really a centre as far as we know.
1: All right, well, Fearless Frank from Felixstowe. Uh, question for Dave. When growing up, he used to go to the local fish and chip shop and get fish and chips wrapped in newspaper. Uh, in today's modern materials, if food was placed in newspaper or magazine, would that print now be considered poisonous?
0: Certainly, the reason why you, you don't get it in newsprint anymore. Was a hygiene thing. Yeah. I don't know whether it was particularly that the newsprint was poisonous. I, to be honest, I don't exactly know what's in the newsprint. Certainly, colour. You could have some heavy metals in there, which you wouldn't really want to be eating. But the other big thing is that if it's second-hand newsprint, then people have had their uh, fingers all over it. You've got no idea what the people were doing with it. So it's very hard to be sure that germs, the, germs, it, germs, everywhere. both germs and if someone's been using some weed killer or something and they come in and read the newspaper, you don't know what's on it. So it's so it's quite dodgy. Um, so I think there was a rule being put in not so very long. I can remember it coming in, so it can't be that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that you're not allowed. It's probably about 20 years ago that you're not allowed to use actual newsprint right next to the fish and chips.
1: Mm. Dave has sent an email because we're running fast out of time. Um, He says, uh, the BP oil escape beneath the sea is at a tremendous pressure. How can oil that supposedly was plant life and fish become trapped so far below oceans at tremendous pressure? And how can plant life and anything in the sea not just rot and dissolve? Otherwise, the seabed would be forming oil now
0: the simple answer is the seabed is forming oil now Hmm. Um, the way you form oil is you get a load of plants and things normally happens in plants, animals just organic stuff Uh, if they sink down to the bottom of an ocean and then get buried relatively quickly then they run out of oxygen so at which point if there's no oxygen there they can't really rot they then get buried deeper and deeper and deeper they slowly decompose a bit, especially if they get very deep they get hot, when they get hot all the organic molecules in them start to break up they, the, some of the water is driven off, and what you're left with is sort of black goo of um, mm. carbon and hydrogen, mm. that tends to then um, the, everything if you, especially under the sea, all the rocks are completely saturated with water so this oil which you've now got is less dense than, than the water which the rocks are uh, saturated with, so it tends to float upwards um, a lot of oil just gently escapes over millions of years through little holes in the, um, the seafloor mm. and so we can't collect it but some of it gets trapped by um, waterproof impermeable mm. layers builds up and then you get a great big um, sort of reservoir of oil which is basically, it's not what you think a big cavern it's basically over load of sand full of oil with water underneath it pushing it upwards um, and makes, so it's trying to float and the big problem they've had with the BP oil thing is it's so deep that there's a, I mean, it's sort of another five miles down below the um, seabed that there's five miles of water making this oil float upwards. And that's a huge pressure difference. And so it's coming out incredibly fast and
1: it's just very difficult to deal with. That's it for this week.